Well, good morning and welcome again to Christ the King. As Keith mentioned at the start of the service, this is World Mission Sunday for the Anglican Church in North America. It's one Sunday a year that we set aside to think about the topic of mission. Now, I think mission as a topic can hit us in maybe one of three ways. I think for some of us, mission is something exciting. We love hearing about what God is doing around the world, reports from missionaries. We like maybe sharing our faith. We like this idea that we're on mission with God. Our life has a purpose. Others of us might feel the idea of mission is a little guilt-inducing. We are aware that we should be sharing our faith, that we are part of this mission too, but we're aware of the ways we're not the best at doing it. Maybe we're aware of the ways we feel we have tried, but it didn't go that well, or it still isn't going well. It can be a discouraging thing for, for us to think about. I think another way we can react to the idea of mission is to feel skeptical. That's certainly how I think most of modern Toronto would see it today. There are some elements of mission that are commendable, building hospitals, schools, serving children, but at least what Paul is talking about here, persuading others, taking people what they believe about about God or reality and changing it to what you believe, I think many people feel that that's actually not such a good thing at all. And actually statistics show that that view even exists in the church. Uh, the Barna Research Group, which looks at statistics in religion, found last year that 47% of, of Christian millennials agree that it, it's at least somewhat wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day have yours. And my sense is that often we feel, we feel maybe tempted to think it's wrong to share faith because it feels a little arrogant. It seems to be saying that what you know about God is right and therefore what I know is wrong and you need to therefore tell me what I should believe so that I, I can believe what you do can feel a little narrow-minded. I think an illustration that gets to how I think our culture thinks about this is the story of the blind men and the elephant. It goes like this. There's a group of blind men. They're trying to describe this elephant, but they're only touching, each one of them is just touching part of it. So one has his arms around the leg of an elephant, and he says, this is a tree. And the other one has his hands on the side of the elephant, and he says, no, this is a wall. And the other has his hands on the trunk and says, it's a snake, so on and so forth. Each blind man thinks that they have the big picture as to what the elephant is, but really they're only interfacing with just a part of it. And so the metaphor goes, with religions, every religion is just touching part of the larger reality of God. Each blind man is a religion, and it'd be wrong for any one religion to claim this is the whole picture. Instead, they should just be more humble and say, this is my experience of God. Now, of course, that view is at odds with the Christian faith. Jesus, who claims, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's a level, a claim at the level of everything. And so I think this raises the question for us this morning. <laughs> is mission a good thing? And why is it that the Christian faith has the idea of mission so at the heart of it? Well, I think this is uh, helpfully addressed in the passage we're looking at this morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to keep it open. We're in the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 5. Now, this is a letter that Paul wrote to a church he had planted in the city of Corinth. This is in modern-day Greece. 
Paul had spent a year and a half there planting this church, um, sharing his faith, leading people to become Christians. But once he left, that's when the complications started coming up in this city. And this second letter that Paul writes to them is in response to a number of people in this church now having rejected him. The church had been visited by a number of other Christians since Paul had left. People, some of them very respectable Christians like Apollos or even the Apostle Peter, it seems, went to Corinth. But it seems also that the church was visited by a lot of Paul's enemies who, in part of discrediting Paul's message, Paul's presentation of the gospel, also were criticizing Paul himself. They charged that Paul was weak, that it seemed he was always suffering, suffering persecution, suffering rejection. That seemed to disqualify him from being a genuine minister of the gospel. They charged Paul as being not eloquent. Apollos was a rhetorician. He spoke well, Paul did not. They, seemed that, they felt that that disqualified him as a real minister of the gospel. Paul also, they found, lacking in authority. They had now heard from Peter. Paul was now small fry. You know, they've heard from the big guy. But they didn't, Paul didn't have any letters of recommendation. They were asking, even though Paul had planted their church, they were asking now, Paul, do you actually have any letters of recommendation, maybe from people like Peter, so that we can know for sure that you are a genuine Christian? So, in short, the purpose of this letter, in part, was for Paul to defend the legitimacy of his ministry. He doesn't do this out of pride just because he wants to be recognized as the person who planted the church, but because he sees these opponents of him, of his, really bringing a distorted message of the Christian faith, and that's what mattered most to Paul. It seems that Paul had already defended himself a bit in a previous letter he'd written in between what we now have as 1st and 2nd Corinthians, a letter that's now been lost. And so it seems that part of the church had come back to Paul's side, but he's wanting to help them know how to answer the criticisms that the other part, the part that still rejected Paul, were making about him. And so we see, if you have the text in front of you, in verse 11, we do get the sense that Paul is defending his ministry, starting at that second sentence. But what we are, and by here he means are the ministry team that he's been a part of with Timothy and Titus and others. What we are is known to God, as in, it's genuine. And I hope it's known also to your conscience. He then says, we are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to, again, answer those who boast about outward appearance, the people saying, Paul should be a better speaker and that sort of thing. Paul's saying, here's, here's how you can answer them. This is why I've, I've written this. There is an answer you can give. You should be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. Paul is implying that you can see the genuineness of his ministry based on what's going on in his heart. And what's going on in his heart, if we go back to the start of verse 11, is that he has this heart to persuade others. Paul's contention is that the mark of genuine faith and ministry is a heart for others to also know Jesus. But this is a claim that Paul must defend in this letter. And we see that I think he defends this claim that evangelism is a mark of genuine ministry in three parts. He tells us first what the motivation is for Christians to engage in evangelism. He tells us what the message is that Christians are to share. And lastly, he tells us the means by which we are to share 
the message of our faith. The motivation, the message, and the means. This first point will be longer and the, the second two shorter. So first, I want to look at the, the motivation as to why Paul thinks Christians are to engage in evangelism. What we see again in verse 11 here is that first, Paul speaks about knowing. Paul speaks about how there is something that we can know as Christians that in light of what we know should impel us outward to tell. Now, just to return to that metaphor of the blind man and the elephant, this is throwing a wrench in that illustration because the, the illustration assumes that the elephant is silent, that everyone is doing their best with their fingertips to try to get what the elephant is, but it's also assuming that the elephant is just standing there being touched. But what if the elephant suddenly spoke and said, I am an elephant? <laughs> or what if the elephant trumpeted its trunk or something? Suddenly, we would hope that all the blind men would stop and I guess they wouldn't look at each other. They would just stop and then say, oh, it's an elephant. And suddenly, it would no longer be arrogant for any one of them to say, no, it's an elephant. We know that. Because they have a new piece of information. Something has been revealed to them that now brings clarity to what was before uncertain. And Paul and the Christian faith is claiming that this very thing has happened particularly through the person of Jesus, that God has gone from the elephant who was relatively silent, we might say, to now revealing something to us so we can know with more confidence what God is really like. And at the heart of that would be, we could say, the person of Jesus, the, the perfect life that he lives. I mean, we're in election season in the, in the states south of the border, and we see that everyone who runs for office, they can dig up something on them. But 2,000 years later, we pretty much have a pretty high view of Jesus still today. No one really wants to throw a, a bone at Jesus, they'll do it at, at Christians, and often rightfully so. But this impeccable life that he lived, so different from any other. But then also his death and resurrection, the fact that there's historical evidence that still today persuades many people to believe this is actually something true. Paul is all, all that Paul is saying is that there is something now we can know that... <laughs> that brings clarity as to what God is like. That's part of the motivation Christians have to share our faith. But still, the fact that you know something doesn't necessarily mean it's right for you to share it with other people. And this is why I think the second part of Paul's motivation, which is the core motivation, comes in verse 14. Paul tells us, for the love of Christ controls us. Paul is saying, the heart for evangelism that I have comes from the love of Christ controlling me. And in fact, the fact that I have a heart for evangelism is a sign that I have grasped the love of Christ. I think to, to unpack this, I love the work of C.S. Lewis in his book, Reflections on the Psalms, when he talks about a bit of why Christians have these calls to praise God in the Bible and why Christians are called to share their faith. Lewis says this, I hadn't noticed that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmists, in telling everyone to praise God, are doing what all men do when they speak about what they care about. 
It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is. To come suddenly at the turn of a road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then to have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than a tin can in the ditch. To hear a good joke and have no one to share it with. Lewis says this, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. I think Lewis's point here is that naturally we share with others about what we have found beautiful and compelling ourselves. And in the context of evangelism, Paul is saying that discovering the love of Christ is to find something so beautiful and compelling and marvelous that to complete the enjoyment of discovering it, it's something we must tell others about. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Paul is framing evangelism as inviting someone to look alongside what you're looking at, at something marvelous and beautiful, and inviting people to discover that for themselves. And that thing, that marvelous thing Paul speaks about here, is the love of Christ. Now, <laughs> we might ask, what does he mean by the love of Christ? And helpfully, he tells us. He says, you'll get the love of Christ when you conclude this, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him, for whose, him who for their sake died and was raised. How do you get the love of Christ more as a reality in your life that gives you a heart to share your faith with others? Well, you do it by concluding. And what do you conclude? Well, four times in these verses, Paul speaks of the death of Christ. That the death of Christ is the essence of his love. Now, I think if we were just to ask the average person on the street today on Spadina what they think of the death of Christ, probably many people would say it's an act of love. It was something that Jesus did on behalf of his disciples. It was a beautiful sacrifice and model. But uh, Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York City, I think has a great point in response to this when he just asks, if Jesus is just someone dying, is that really an act of love? So just by way of illustration, we could imagine after the service today, a number of us walk down or take the streetcar down to the lake. And it's a sunny day, we're walking there along, along the water, and I just, you know, have enjoyed spending time with you all this morning, and I just say, you know, I like you guys very much, and I just want to show you how much I love you right now. And what do I do? I jump over the fence, swim out into the lake as far as I can, and I drown. Are you guys going to look at each other and go, wow, he loved us so much? <laughs> of course not. You're going to think, this guy is so crazy. How did we miss it? <laughs> but let's say we change the story. Let's say instead of me just swimming out and drowning, one of you falls in and a current takes you out and I jump in to rescue you and I save you, but I drown in the process. Would that be an act of love? It changes the story. I think in the same way, if the death of Jesus is just some guy dying, 
And if it has nothing to do with Him dying in our place, dying for our sins, taking the punishment that we deserve, in no way is that an act of love. It is purely a crazy guy giving up his life in a confusing end to the story. The death of Christ can only be loving when we see that we were in a situation of danger that his death has rescued us from. And Paul here in this text speaks of two ways in which Christ's death has indeed saved us from such a great danger. In verse 10, Paul speaks of how, just before our section, we will all be present before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Paul is saying one day we will all have to give an account for our deeds. They will all be laid out before the judgment seat of God, even the things we most regret and are ashamed of. And out of this, Paul says in verse 11, there is a natural fear of the Lord that comes. A fear of the Lord to be exposed this way to God, to have all of our actions laid out before us. Paul in Romans tells us that the wages of sin is death. In the book of Revelation, we read that indeed there will be a scene where we stand before the throne and the books are opened. Another book will be opened, the book of life, and the dead are judged by what is written in the books according to what they have done. And if anyone's name is not written in the book of life, he is thrown into the lake of fire. This is deep stuff. <laughs> but Paul here is contending that the danger in part that Christ's death has rescued us from is judgment and condemnation before God. Condemnation for what our sins do deserve. Now, I think today, again, if we think of the average person on Spadina, this is quite... <laughs> extreme, to say the least. This seems maybe to be the kind of fear-mongering religion that's out there, making little kids afraid of the dark and helping them be scared straight to live a good life. Is there really such a thing as a lake of fire? Is there really an eternal death that would ever wait for us? I think I appreciate that that is something that is so extreme, and maybe we feel, I don't feel I'm in that much danger. I feel I've lived a pretty good life without being a Christian. I don't feel that this is something I really need to take seriously. I think I resonate and understand that a bit. But I think I'd just like to share an illustration again that I think helps us realize that just because in a, a diagnosis maybe is extreme, that doesn't mean we're right necessarily to throw it out. A friend of mine uh, uh, brought his father to the hospital. This was a few years ago because his father wasn't feeling well. He wasn't feeling terrible, but he had a number of medical issues and so they just felt safer to take him to the hospital. And when they took the, his father there, uh, the doctor took a look at him and said, this is actually quite serious. We need to do an operation right now. Uh, and I think it was gonna be quite invasive. It was something like having to give a kid, he had a kidney transplant or something like that. He needed something immediate done right now. And after the doctor left, my friend explained that he was there with his family and his father and the family began to discuss and wonder whether they should get a second opinion. I mean, this is quite an extreme diagnosis. Their father doesn't feel that bad. Uh, this has happened before that he's felt this way. Is it, maybe this is, maybe the doctor cutting corners to just fix the issue quickly when really there could be a less invasive way to help their father. It was an extreme diagnosis. And he explains looking back in the moment that what would have helped them trust the diagnosis they were given, ex extreme as it was, 
would be if something happened a bit like this. Like if the doctor came back and said to the family all gathered there, look, I know this seems quite extreme, but I am convinced your father needs the surgery. I've gone ahead to check to see if we have any kidneys that we can use for the transplant, and we don't. But look, I'm a match as a donor. I'm going to give this kidney because I really think this surgery needs to go through. And my friend said, if that had happened, suddenly now he would have a new motive to trust the doctor, to trust the diagnosis that was being given, because he was seeing the willingness the doctor had to suffer in order that they take seriously the extremeness of the diagnosis and to really say, this is a serious thing. And I think Paul is saying something very much the same here. It is an extreme diagnosis of the judgment of God that's being spoken of, and yet, Paul is speaking of this in the context of a God who has laid down his life that we might heed this warning and respond to the offer we have to have our names written in the book of life, to be spared from having all of our deeds be the basis on which we are judged and instead to be judged by a different standard. Paul explains how this works in our text in verse 21. This is one of the most marvelous texts of the whole Bible. How could it be that you could get spared from that situation. Paul writes, for our sake, that is for our benefit, he, God, this rescue is something God is doing, God made him, that is Jesus, he who knew no sin, God made him to be sin. That is on the cross, God counts Jesus as a sinner. He treats him the way that we deserve to be treated. He takes our punishment and dies in our place so that, we read, in him, in Jesus, and through what he's done on the cross, we might become the righteousness of God. That is, just as in the cross our sins are being put onto Christ, so the righteousness of God which was found in Jesus, the only one who could have really met the judgment seat of God and stood it, that perfect righteous life is now imputed to us. Martin Luther spoke of the status of a Christian as being someone who is simultaneously still sinful and yet fully justified, that is, righteous in the eyes of God because of the perfect life that Christ lived applied to them. And Paul argues, to the extent to which you conclude this is true, to conclude this is true about you, that that's what God has done through Christ on the cross, to that extent you will find in yourself a new heart beginning to grow a heart of gratitude to God for what he has done, but also a heart that will begin to grow that others would discover that this has also been done for them too. Paul argues that the death of Christ has rescued us from judgment, but secondly, he tells us also it's rescued us from something else, which he refers to as living for ourselves. And I think to unpack this, we have to look at this interesting verse 14, where we read, one has died for all. That makes sense. But then it says, therefore all have died. And that seems a little less clear. <laughs> but I think what helps us unpack this is what Paul has written actually elsewhere. And Romans 6.6, 6, which if you want to look at, just well, it's just this one verse we're looking at, but it is on page 8, 886 if you wanted to look at it. Paul writes this, that we know that our old self was crucified in Jesus 
in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So here Paul is introducing what's now called by theologians this doctrine of union with Christ. Paul is saying when you make that first conclusion, when you come to conclude that Christ took your judgment on the cross, when you become a Christian, therefore, you become united with Christ. And when you're united with Christ, because Christ died, so also when he died, something of you died as well. He refers to this as the body of sin. He says, because Christ died, that part of you has now been brought to nothing. And as a result of that, you're no longer enslaved to sin. Now, Paul, elsewhere in Romans 6 even, will tell us that sin will still live in our members. This isn't saying if you become a Christian, you'll never sin again. But it is saying the enslaving power of sin has now died to us. Now that when we are wrestling with our sins, it is no longer that we are trapped there. That power has been destroyed. We are no longer powerless against our sin. We have a real power to change now. And we see that this is unpacked back in 2 Corinthians in verse 17 by not just speaking of a death that in some sense we have experienced, but also a new life that we now have. Just as Christ raised, if we're stuck with him in that part too, something new has been created in us also. Paul writes, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. Christianity, Paul is saying, isn't about good people becoming better. But as it's been said, it's about dead people becoming alive. That when we were enslaved to sin, we really had no power to escape from the sin of having to live for ourselves. Even to be a good and moral person, and maybe even to grow morally, still keeps us in the trap of living for ourselves, because why would, why would we be pursuing moral progress? Well, to feel good about ourselves, to feel that our life has meant something here, to feel that if there is a God, we've at least done our best. We're not perfect, but we've done our best to be good people. But Paul speaks of this as actually another form of slavery. We're still living for ourselves. How do you actually live to God? Paul says you need a new heart, and that has to be a heart that's touched, that's made that first conclusion of the rescue that God has already done on our behalf. Now, this has been a long first point, <laughs> but I think the question for us is, <laughs> if we are wanting and aware that we should have a heart to share our faith with others, but we're aware that we don't, I think the question for us is, have we concluded these things? It's one thing to know that these are things that Christians should believe, but it's another thing to conclude them for ourselves. To conclude, one, that through the death of his son, God has fully freed you from judgment. That there is nothing that you can do anymore that would lead him to love you any less. There's nothing you can do anymore that can make him love you anymore. That your name is now written in the book of life. That no matter how much guilt and condemnation you might feel, when God looks at you, he sees the perfect righteousness of Christ. Have you concluded that for yourself? If you have put your trust in Christ. Paul says you can. But have you concluded also that in Christ's death, sin's power in your life has died too? That no matter how much you feel enslaved now to your sins, you truly are not. You have a new nature. You have a new power to live for God. 
Because you are now one with Christ and in his resurrection, something now has come alive in you. Paul says, to the extent to which you conclude these things, I think, one, you will be able to conclude that God really loves you. <laughs> that he delights in you. That it was out of his love and delight for you that he gave his son. And Paul argues, to the extent that you do that, you will find a heart begin to grow for God and to grow for others to discover this for themselves. I think at the very least, even if we don't feel like C.S. Lewis says, that we're bubbling over all the time and just can't wait always for people just to discover our joy, we don't always feel that way. But at the very least, what this leads to is that Christ becomes someone precious to us. And when someone becomes precious to you, what matters to them begins to matter to you. This is when people say love changes you. You don't like cooking, you marry someone who loves cooking, you start to like cooking. Why? Well, because you love the person. <laughs> and your love for the person then changes even your tastes. You begin to want to desire to please that person. And that's actually what's in light of verse 11 here, when Paul speaks of knowing the fear of the Lord, leading us to persuade others. That's really referring to, for the Christian, the fear of the Lord that we have is just a fear of reverence. But a reverence that shows us that what matters to God is that people come to know him, and that should therefore matter to us as well. Christ has become precious to us because of the dangers he has rescued us from. All right, that is all the motivation. The motivation is that we now know something about God, but it also is that we are now controlled by the love of Christ because of what that has done to our heart. But now we turn, lastly, you know, to the message, and then we'll end with the means, the means by which we're to share this message. The content of our message we see first begins with a new perspective. What does it mean that we're sharing our faith with others? What should be in that faith or message that we share? First, I think a new perspective. Look at verse 16 with me. We read that from now on, Paul says, we regard no one according to the flesh. And I think this is still relevant to our society today. I think that for most people, they would say, Really, there's just a physical reality to this world. But Paul is saying that part of our message is to help people see there's more to it. The people that we see on the street, our friends, our family members, are actually all immortals. They are people made in God's image. There is a spiritual dynamic behind the world. And at the heart of that dynamic is our relationship with the God who made us. Paul is saying when it comes to sharing our our faith, there should be this new perspective. There is a spiritual reality to the world. And Christ, Paul writes, we also once regarded according to the flesh, that is, as just a man, but we regard him thus no longer. In Christ especially, we see that something beyond the physical was going on here. Look at the life that he lived. He wasn't any ordinary man. Paul himself had had to change his mind about Jesus. So we have here first a new perspective that comes with our message, but also the core of the, of the message has to be, then, what God has done. Verse 18, all this is from God. He's the one who's doing this. What we're sharing is not about our strengths or our rhetoric or, or our impressiveness. Instead, it's about what God has done, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. We've already looked at that at length. A new perspective, sharing what God has done. But the last part of our message is what we must do in response. And this is so beautifully summarized just in verse 21. Be reconciled to God. That is the Christian message. 
It implies that even though Christ has reconciled himself to the world, there is still something that is left for us to do. We still now have to be reconciled to God. The evangelist Michael Green spoke, spoke about two walls that divide us from God. One is the wall of our sinfulness in light of God's holiness. And that is a wall that God has taken onto himself in the cross. It has fallen on him. He has taken our place. But there remains another wall that divides us, between, uh, divides us and God. And that is the wall of whether we will receive and accept what he has done on our behalf. Whether we will make those conclusions about ourselves what he has done for us, the dangers he has rescued us from, and whether we will let that begin to control our life. And now to turn away from living for ourselves and to live for God. That's what it means to be reconciled to God. And I think we see that that comes with a degree of invitation to decision. And what I mean by that is this. Uh, I can tell the story more confidently because my wife is not here at this service, but I'm telling, I wanted to share the story of how I got engaged to my wife. This is, I promise, how it did happen. She vouched for it in the first service, but it was nothing super dramatic, but I did, you know, the standard, got down on one knee, poured out my heart to my wife, asked her to marry me. And she said, yes, wonderfully, but she could have said no, that is a possibility. That would have been very hard. But one thing that she could not have done, I think, was just to say nothing. Like, to have me on my knee, my heart is poured out, and she just says nothing. Ladies, please don't do this if someone proposes to you. You can say yes, you can say no, but you can't just say nothing. But why? Well, because such an outpouring of love, it calls for a response. I think in the same way, part of our message as Christians as we share about our faith is that this reckless outpouring of love that God has done on the cross at such great cost to himself, it's something that at the very least invites our response to it. We can say yes to it, we can say no to it, but I don't think we can say nothing. We can't just walk away and say, well, I don't need to make up my mind about this. It's the kind of news that you have to make a response to. And we see even Paul can't help in this letter to break out into an invitation for those who haven't yet made that decision to follow Christ. He says, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And then again, he tells them about what Christ has done for them. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God, working together with him. Then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. This grace that God has shown on the cross, don't let it go to waste. This comes then from Isaiah 49, which... Keith read from this morning, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Paul can't help but point out to them, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Even today, any one of us can make that conclusion along with Paul of what Christ has done on our behalf and respond to his invitation. I wonder if you haven't responded to that, what you make of this idea that it's an outpouring of love that requires an answer. What do you say to that? But lastly, we look now at the means by which we're to share this message. And this, of course, takes us to this famous uh, image here of ambassadors. This is verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. That reminds us, one, God is the one making the appeal. Really, it's God who's on mission, and we are merely part of the mission that he is doing. And that is how ambassadors work. When the ambassador speaks, he's really speaking on behalf of the sovereign and shouldn't say things the sovereign wouldn't want him or her to say. But in the same way, when the ambassador is rejected, that does entail the rejection of the sovereign 
who sent them. And in this sense, we're reminded that an ambassador is called to be faithful, to be faithful in presenting the message that he was entrusted with. And this is hard because in our culture today, this is a arresting, troubling message. To be told, be reconciled to God implies that on our own, we are not. We aren't reconciled with God. We are under His judgment, but that He has worked a reconciliation on our behalf, but that there must be a response on our part as well. You see that ambassadors are, they must be faithful, but also I think we know ambassadors are strategic. What I mean by this is that I don't think many ambassadors just go and yell at the presidents of other countries they're sent to. That's not good diplomacy. Uh, and I think this should get us thinking about if we are ambassadors, what does Christ-like diplomacy <laughs> look like? And I think there's maybe much we could say about this, but we don't have time. But I'll just say a book that I found really helpful is a book called Honest Evangelism. It's by a guy named Rico Tice, who's a pastor and evangelist in the UK. And he lays out what he, call, what he describes as three parts of evangelism that, that we can all be engaging in in all the places where we are. He says the parts are to celebrate, to serve, and then what he calls to cross the pain line. So first, just to look at celebrate, to celebrate others. Well, that's to look for things in each other's lives. With someone who's not a Christian, to look at something in their life that you can genuinely celebrate things that they do well, things that are actually are evidences of God's grace in their life, the gifts that He's given them, the, the things that really are commendable in their life, to celebrate them. But then also to serve them, to look for ways that you might go out of your way to serve that person, ways by which your sacrifice for them might point them to the reality that there is a God who has sacrificed so much more through the person of His Son. Tim Keller, I think, provocatively says that as Christians, people should look at what we believe and say, I really, maybe I don't agree with what they believe, but I'm so glad they're here. I'm so glad they're in our neighborhood. I'm so glad they're in our life. And I wonder whether our non-Christian friends really think of us that way. We're to celebrate, we're to serve, but lastly, we are to cross the pain line. I like here that Rico admits that sometimes it can be hard, it can feel painful to, to bring up the subject of faith, to, to invite someone to church, to ask to read the, whether someone might be interested in reading the Bible with you, to, to bring up the question of faith at all, and to ask, I'm curious, did you grow up in a religious home, or what do you make of God, or have you ever thought about what happens after you die? And I think Rico helpfully says people can either respond by maybe clamming up or changing the subject, <laughs> And in which case, then that's all right. You go back to celebrating and serving. You've been faithful. Pray for an opportunity then to share, to share again at the right time. But it might be, you know, that they are, they've had their hearts prepared. This is, is the mission, after all, that God is doing. They're prepared to have that conversation, to hear what He has done on their behalf. So, celebrating, serving, and then at some point, crossing that line. I just want to end by asking you all the question, asking myself the question, where has God called you to be an ambassador? Usually ambassadors are appointed to a place, unless they're like ambassadors at large, but even so then we need to specify. Almost always an ambassador is appointed to a place. So where, where is the place that God has appointed us? What is the, the social setting or the industry or the family that God has put us in? And then lastly, you know, how are you doing in that role as an ambassador? 
I think maybe lastly, just as I was finishing this talk last night, I just was recalling that this can still feel quite daunting. But what's interesting is that we talked at the beginning that one of the criticisms of Paul was that he was weak. He said his letters are strong, his bodily presence is weak. And he didn't speak very well. But what's interesting is Paul knew they had that criticism of him. And yet in his letter, he just can't help but draw out again how weak he is. <laughs> he talks about his weakness. He talks about his afflictions and his suffering. And in fact, he says these bold things about it. He says, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. He says, when I am weak, then I am strong. And I think what that tells us is, just as Paul saw his heart for evangelism to be something that showed the genuineness of his faith, so also Paul saw that his awareness of his weakness was just as much also an evidence of the genuineness of his faith. Because surely we are a strange group of ambassadors whose only credentials is that we are so broken and messed up that the Son of God has laid down his life on our behalf. And to the extent that that reaches our hearts, that can't help but make us weak people. I think that Paul is saying the kind of ambassadors that we should be as Christians are ones that are faithful, but also ones that are deeply weak, aware of our flaws, aware of the way we won't present Jesus perfectly, aware of the way we're not the most impressive people, and yet aware all the more deeply of God's love for us in the midst of the weak people that we are and the work that he has done through us and in us and the work that he's wanting to do with those who God's put in our lives who do not yet know him. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.